Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. Right, here we are again. Another busy week goes by, albeit perhaps not quite as chaotic in markets as the last couple. We'll do a bit today on the UK economy and house prices to see what the story is there. Thematic funds, get the latest from the US, and we'll also get on to China, Germany, and some other stories. That just about covers everything I've been hearing, but Will, I'm sure I can keep you honest and slip in a few other points here and there (laughs) to keep you on your toes. But why don't we start off with economics? Now, I get the year is still young, very young, but it does feel like a lot has happened in the past month or so. And I'm basically just interested to know if where we now sit sort of aligns with where you and the team thought we might be at the turn of the year and how your thinking has changed, if at all. So why don't we, for a change, start with good old UK and our home market. What are you thinking there? Better, worse or broadly similar to expectations? Hello, Miles. Hello, everybody. Um, Definitely, from my perspective, better for the UK. I mean, as you know, we were already at the sort of more glass half full end of a very gloomy spectrum of views on the outlook at the beginning of the year. The news has mostly been a bit better. The outlook for growth looks a bit firmer set, I think. Uh, Some of the lead indicators are looking fractionally perkier if you squint. And we're also most of the way through choking down that step change in mortgage costs in terms of the number of households that have already experienced that step change. There was a great piece of work done by our investment bank colleagues on on that very subject. Meanwhile, the outlook for inflation is a bit more encouraging, which should mean that we are ever more plausibly on the other side of that rate hike mountain we have been scaling to. A positive start. I <laughs> we'll like it. it we'll try and keep it up. I can't promise it, but we will. Uh, we will yes. try. But um, you didn't touch on the job market there, and that's obviously an important factor too. Do we seem to be in a slightly better place there as well than some feared, or not quite the case? Well, I mean, yes. No, difficult to say. I mean, there's been a bit of a gap in the labour force data in, in the UK with the Office for National Statistics exploring some new methods and techniques and trying to sort of, you know, improve its, improve the quality of the releases. And we did have a release this week, but there's a few interesting points to make, I think. First, it only takes us up to last November, so it's already quite out of date, to be honest. Uh, second, the efforts to improve the series, which the ONS is extremely transparent about, as you, you would expect, they highlight some of the problems with putting too much weight on labour market or any data, actually. Um, employment tends to be what's called a, a lagging, you know, called, called lagging information anyway. So, so companies will generally find other ways to respond to falling demand before they resort to cutting staff. That may be even more the case after the pandemic effects on the job markets around the world, something called, you know, labor hoarding phenomenon. Um, so the last shoe to drop is generally unemployment. Other data points should have told you what is coming long before. Not always, of course, but just a rule of thumb. And you can look at the US. So people have been are still fixated on some weakening trends within US employment statistics within the last six months. And they're arguing that this could warn of a recession still ahead of us. However, the coincident data, i.e. sort of what seems to be going on in real time, has continued to be super strong. And now the lead indicators, those that are supposed to tell us what's coming to a certain degree, are actually picking up. Now, that might argue that this focus on the labour market data and some weakness, that was mostly a red herring. Perhaps not. Maybe data will be revised lower again or something will come along to make that statement look incredibly foolish. However, Uh, I think for investors, the risk of putting too much analytical weight in labour market data may be a little bit like trying to drive a windy cliff top road by only looking in your rearview mirror. 
dangerous. Yeah, so so not quite that simple. Uh, no, but no. but still, that was uh, another positive few comments. So I like it. And and you obviously mentioned the US, and look, we'll, we'll get on to that. But before we do, house prices is something many clients and investors, understandably, right, ask about and, and keep a close eye on. And it seems the picture there might also be getting a little bit rosier. Yes, um, certainly there has been a bit of a welcome bounce on some measures. Uh, perhaps there's a bit more confidence that we're on the other side of this inflation hump. Like I said, you know, house prices are an interesting thing. There's often uh, not a very easy narrative to trot out in terms of sort of, you know, overarching drivers. Some of the factors are extremely local to the house you are buying or selling, literally street level influences, noisy neighbours and so on. Um, and there's also the distorting effect of the pandemic um, and the reach for space and the aftermath of that. But one thing we would continue to warn against, I guess, is the extrapolation of house prices over uh, the last several decades deep into the future. You know, there's this sharp, amazing uptrend in house prices that we've all, um, homeowners, uh, have enjoyed uh, over that time frame. But there are likely demand and supply factors that may not be repeated to the same uh, degree. Meanwhile, if there is a macro factor, a top-down factor that can be powerful, it is inflation-adjusted interest rates, real rates. We've spoken about this before. Uh, I think it's a 1% rise in real rates can be linked to quite a substantial retreat in house prices over longer periods of time. Now, my personal hunch is that these real interest rates are likely to trend at a slightly higher level in the next few years than they did for much of the time since the great financial crisis for a range of reasons. Productivity again? <laughs> that might be part of it. I thought that might be coming. I thought that might be coming. <laughs> you know too well, yes. <laughs> I, yeah, uh, I'm experienced now. I'll, yeah. I'll leave that one there, although I'm actually just starting the process of moving myself. So maybe yes. I can report back in a few weeks with some first-hand yes. experience. Anyway, let's move to the US. There's obviously a continued lot of noise in the foreground on, on various policy matters, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly difficult at the moment. There's a lot of what might uh, generously be termed jostle uh, ahead of the November elections. And immigration is, as here, uh, you know, front and centre of a mostly pretty reductive debate on both sides of the political aisle, to be honest. Um, I did note that the House of Representatives did actually pass a bill by 357 to 70, so strong bipartisan support, mm. on expanding eligibility for uh, child tax credit, among other quite useful things. So out of the glare of the still kind of raging culture wars, there's some functional stuff going on. And this is, after all, you know, if you think about these child tax credits, you know, in the US, this is one of the most effective anti-poverty programs in motion in the US. Now, there is a chance it gets blocked in the Senate, but it's not talked about to the same degree as the aid to Ukraine or Israel, of course. Now, the other point to make, I think, and it's a boring historical point, but again, I have the mic, so I'm going to keep it. Uh, <laughs> but America first is obviously not a new slogan at all. Uh, this goes a long way back. And actually, you know, between 1914 and 1941, American democratic politics would actually make it impossible for the US to use its growing military and financial power to act decisively as a kind of European Eurasian power. And this was apparent right from the start of World War One. So when the state under Woodrow Wilson was resolutely opposed to getting tangled in the war, it was actually J.P. Morgan who stepped in, becoming the purchasing agent and creditor uh, for the Allies, where the state would not. And Wilson actually fought the 1916 elections on an America first ticket uh, against a pro-war Republican candidate backed by J.P. Morgan. If I'm being 
really honest, Will, I don't particularly like the parallels with uh, with World Wars. No, I know. God, we, we, you and I have talked about this and everyone is well aware. We're certainly in a precarious moment. And remember, you know, I think the point that we would make here and have made, you know, several times is that there have been many such you know, such precarious moments in history, particularly in the Cold War, if you think about it, you know, as soon as we achieve the ability to destroy everyone on the planet with a certain number of weapons, some of those we just never knew about. And mm. many of these didn't spill over into something worse, more deleterious, but we naturally tend to focus on the times that did. And then we fashion a narrative out of these times. Now, at the end of, you know, the unipolar moment in history where America policed us all, uh, that's seemingly passing. And as the geostrategic doomers tell us, we're entering a period of multipolarity, of dangerous non-state actors, uh, and more besides. Uh, I'm obviously not sure, but see nothing inevitable about the descent into war. There's a scope for misstep, of course. And really, I think I'm just wary, and we're just wary, of the temptation to extrapolate the recent past, as you know. The way our brains work, with so much focus on the recent versus the distant, it really makes this tempting, I think, almost inevitable in the way we think about stuff. However, you know, a more careful study of history really cautions against this. There's a lot less information about the future in the recent past than we generally think, if that makes sense. This applies to geopolitics, economics, and pretty much everything I can think of. Yeah, no, look, it it does. It all makes sense to me. But surely there are some trending aspects. We can see that in markets, right? Prevailing wisdom, it can stick around for one thing, but the likes of culture, as we discussed over the past couple of weeks, that that can shift slowly. Yeah, and regulatory frameworks and other stuff, you know, you can find, yes, you know, these things can stick around and don't move as fast as the technological context. I think that's right. But picking the trends that will continue and those that don't, and amongst the jumble that one former prime minister famously described as events, I think that may be apocryphal, but that should be a very low confidence game, if you see what I mean. That's why our investment philosophy is so insistent on boring diversification, of course. I think you're being a little bit harsh on yourself there. I know an awful (laughs) lot of work goes on within the team to run those portfolios and funds robustly. Although that that does actually nicely lead me on to another subject we've had a fair few questions on, and that is around thematic funds, which we haven't discussed for for some time. Mm -hmm. I still want to grill you a little bit on the team's thoughts on, on Germany and China, two of the areas that are in truth starting to look a little bit wobbly on the evidence of this week's data. But let's do thematic First, these are targeted funds. They're extremely popular at the moment and they generate a lot of buzz, don't they? Yeah, for sure they're popular. uh, And I think understandably so in some ways. You know, they provide a compelling or often provide a compelling and straightforward narrative. And that can be very powerful, particularly if it enables you to feel like you're tapping into a, you know, a hot button issue like water scarcity or AI or robotics or health or whatever. Yeah, agreed. It, it can provide, I think it's fair to say, what a lot of the marketing people call cut through. But but what about them as an actual means of investing? Is anything there? Yes. Well, um, you know, first of all, I would say that it's your money. <laughs> That's yep, obvious. Fair point. Um, but, you know, I, you know, I also know what a buzzkill I am about investing. And I'm going to speak for the team as well. You know, to me and the team, it, it's pretty much our life and pretty much all we think about. Um, and as such, I'm well aware that we're capable of sucking the fun out of it for the many who are just looking for a little punt on something or other, whether crypto or something else. I also think that if these targeted funds are providing some measure of diversified exposure to investment markets, so as long as those risks are well understood, that's not a terrible thing. 
I guess I would warn that the more obvious the theme sounds, the more intuitive, the more you should worry about it already being overhyped, that, you know, the marketing tail is wagging the investment dog as such. Uh, if I could force everyone to do what I wanted uh, in investments rather than in life, of course, I can barely force my wife's miniature dashens to do their business outside on a windy day. But if I could, I would say at the core of whatever investments you hold have a globally diversified multi-asset class fund just kicking away in the background. Don't touch it, just leave it uh, like our multi-manager or global markets range, but of course other providers are out there too. Now on the edges, I would allow some people some investment filigree, some decoration, some little punts for their enjoyment, whether thematic or something a bit more concentrated. The key, I think, would be to not let the satellite, as such, the satellite investments, overwhelm the core in terms of risk or return. Now, that way you get the best of both worlds. Literally the entire world economy working with your savings day and night, and then a bit of fun on the side, some long shots that could come off but won't materially damage you if they don't. Does that make sense? It does. So long story short, I suppose it's feel free to have some fun at your own risk, but just don't put all your eggs in one basket. Oh, you could have answered that question so much more quickly than I could. <laughs> well, I like to, I like to answer nonetheless. But just um, just finishing off on the two areas I mentioned before, and you might wonder yes. why they'd actually be part of a diversified investment fund at the moment, Germany and China. Both economies seem to be struggling at the moment for very different reasons. Is there anything new to say in either case there? Yeah, well, I mean, at the moment in Europe, there's a bit of a reversal of some of the kind of economic narratives of the decade since the euro crisis. So the manufacturing heavy north is struggling, uh, in part due to its extra reliance on Chinese demand. And in Germany's case, you've got that, you know, that incredible dependence on uh, Russian gas, which as a policy is obviously not aging particularly well. The South looks a bit better set on other hands. And, I'm, you know, real incomes are growing, credit conditions are easing in general. This is a pretty oversimplified view, of course. But to my mind, Europe still looks pretty interesting from a number of perspectives. You know, yes, the region's equity markets have been trounced by their US brethren this last decade for a range of reasons. But value hands, you know, if you are worried about US valuations, are probably a bit less than others. But if you are worried about US kind of valuation entry points in aggregate, or even for the big seven, the magnificent seven, value hounds have plenty to sniff around in Europe. And again, I would caution strongly against letting the last decade own too much mental space in your attempts to predict what comes next in stock market regions. That hasn't proved that predictable. So yes, we think keep an egg in that basket as such. I'm not sure that analogy works on that one, but you know what I mean. I know. I know what you mean. It was a good, it was a good attempt. It was a good attempt. Um, but on China, there was, uh, well, a rout, right, in small cap stocks and, and policymakers there are certainly seemingly stepping in more aggressively in their attempts to control the multiplying problems, aren't they? Yes. I mean, I, you know, I mean, there's lots to say on China, you know, another podcast, we can do the full length again. And, and we've spoken a lot about the sort of the problems yeah. that Chinese policymakers face and all that kind of thing. But I, I think the lesson that I increasingly take from all of this is just how difficult it is to actually command a big and complex economy. In part, this is why many argue that you need to let market forces do as much as possible. You know, I can't remember who said this in the sort of 50s. I think it was a German political guru uh, who basically said rather succinctly, you know, state where necessary, markets where possible. And that's the guiding principle. There is not a hard line to be drawn in every single economy. 
in terms of where the state should reach and where the markets should be allowed free hand, that bit of where necessary for the state derives from, you know, centuries of societal, political, economic and other weather. You know, you can think about where healthcare provision stretches to in the US versus the UK and all sorts of other things. However, the point you come back to again and again is that command economies can be very good at mobilizing to a few objectives, you know, think the USSR and, uh, you know, Olympic athletes or the space program, or even, you know, the Cuban health system. These are some famous examples, though there is some debate on the latter piece, given the sort of surveillance objectives of many of the health professionals. Chinese policymakers have managed this last 30 years or so with incredible skill. There's no doubt about that. And the poverty reduction is jaw dropping. We always make that point. But there is a sense that the state is stretching way, way too far into areas where markets could do a better job at allocating resources. None of that makes it uninvestable, of course. There's simply too much going on in such a massive economy to make such a generalization. And as we've said before, actually, sentiment towards the area is already terrible, suggesting that much bad news is already priced in. We're keeping a close eye for opportunities, but for the moment, we're keeping our exposures relatively contained and neutral. But yeah, it's certainly interesting to keep an eye on where sentiment is so weak. Got it. Understood and all clear to me. So thanks as ever, Will. I'm off on holiday for the next few weeks. That's, well, good news for me. And it's probably good news for those listening too, in truth. But Will, you'll be back, won't you, with the team next week. So have a great weekend and we'll speak soon. All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.